the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, We're going to shift gears and uh, go back in time a little bit. Uh, It was almost 75 years ago when the uh, U.S. House of uh, Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities concluded its first round of hearings on the alleged communist infiltration of the motion picture industry. Uh, Subsequently, uh, there was a group called the Hollywood Ten who ended up being cited for uh, contempt of Congress because they refused to testify. And uh, a a new book uh, published uh, by the University Press of Kentucky and written by my next guest, Bernard Dick, is uh, called Radical Innocence, a Critical Study of the Hollywood Ten. And we're going to find out who they were and how they ended up in jail and, um, and what we know about them now. Uh, anyway, Bernard, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I don't know if I set that up as well as I could have. What is it? Oh, no, um, it was fine, yes. The, the Hollywood Ten... Um, Again, it's been 75 years, but this was a group of uh, writers, directors, and I think one producer um, that were identified as having been in contempt of Congress, and they ended up spending time in jail from six months to a year or something. And and, and I guess what I'm wondering is... um, why we don't know more about them today, or do we? Has some of their work survived? Well, yes, I, I, certainly their films have, and uh, 
several of them uh, were novelists and short story writers, so you can still get their novels. For example, Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun is still in print. And and what are some of the movies that we might Well, know? Um, actually, their film scripts varied in quality, but um, my approach was actually to look at the so-called Hollywood 10 uh, individually, because when you group people under one big label, they lose their individuality. I mean, you know, we've heard, and I grew up with, the three Bs, Beethoven and Brahms. Well, Brahms was not Beethoven, didn't sound like Beethoven, and Beethoven didn't sound like Bach, and Bach didn't sound like either of them. So I think when you do slap a label on a group of people, um, you really destroy what made each of them an individual, what made each of them unique. Um, so I took the approach of going through the tent one by one to show that they were very creative people. Perhaps they became too involved in radical politics because when you become involved in radical politics, it saps your creative energy. And they became so um, embroiled in the left that whatever potential they had as writers, as novelists, as playwrights, uh, as short story writers, really was sapped. So they really didn't produce scripts on the order of, well, let's say Joseph L. Mankiewicz's All About Eve, you know, or um, um, uh, anything by Dudley Nichols or Nunnally Johnson or Preston Sturgis. I mean, none of them was a Preston Sturgis, a Joe Mankiewicz, a Nunnally Johnson, a Dudley Nichols. But, you know, they, they produced a certain uh, sizable amount of work to keep them employed. And when they lost their employment in uh, 1947, uh, that was pretty much it because they remained blacklisted. Well, in Trumbo's case, it, he came off the blacklist in 1960 when um, Otto Preminger announced that he was hiring Trumbo to do the screen adaptation of Exodus. And then, of course, uh, Kirk Douglas got on the bad wagon and said, you know, I've hired... Uh, Trumbo to do the screen adaptation of Howard Fast's novel, Smarticus. So then it began to change. But for that 10-year period, people wrote under fronts, which is very well uh, portrayed in the Woody Allen film, The Front. I mean, you actually had to use a front, have somebody front for you. It was your work, but it had their name. Gotcha. Or you would write under pseudonyms. I mean, Trumbo wrote under uh, Ben L. Perry. He wrote under um, Will Crutchfield. He wrote under Sam Jackson. You know, you just had to do that sort of thing if you wanted to survive. This is uh, a very different uh, book in, in many ways to the other books you've written, Bernard, The, the Golden Age of the MGM and... Uh, the Golden Age musicals of, of Daryl Zanuck. What got you on the trail of the uh, Hollywood Ten? Well, um, in the 80s, I was um, researching my book on the American World War II film, uh, The um, Star-Spangled Screen. And as a child, I saw a movie called Nunchal Escape that came out in 1944. And the movie stayed with me for several reasons. Um, first of all, 
uh, it actually did look forward to a time when Nazi war criminals would be put on trial. And the whole movie is a flashback, which you have a Nazi war criminal uh, with the emblematic name of Grimm uh, on trial for atrocities. And there was also a scene that always stayed with me, uh, and that was a scene at a railroad station. Now, the, the setting was Poland. The Polish Jews were told to assemble at, I think, 6 o'clock in the morning at a railroad station with one suitcase. And while they are waiting to be transported, obviously, to Auschwitz, their rabbi urges them to resist. And they do, and they're gunned down, and the final scene, and it's very quiet, is, after all of the gunfire, the whole platform is strewn with the dead bodies. Now, I didn't know anything about that film or how to get it, and of course you couldn't get it then because there was no tape of it, it was never shown, but I did hear on, and I would talk about talk radio, which we did have in New York, by the way, in the 80s. Barry Gray, I don't know if you remember him, he had a wonderful show on WMCA. He was interviewing the author of the screenplay, Lester Cole, who was one of the Hollywood Ten. And Lester had just written his autobiography, Hollywood Red. And um, I called uh, WMCA. Barry Gray was very nice to me. He said, well, you know, I'll give you the address of a close friend, which he did. The close friend put me in touch with Lester. Lester actually brought me when we were staying in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Roosevelt. He brought me the script of Nunchal Escape so I could work from that. Now, today, you can actually get it. It has been shown on Turner Classic Movies. But uh, that really made me aware of the fact that these 10 individuals were really extraordinary, in many ways, human beings. Lester Cole, yes, he was an unreconstructed Stalinist. Um, You couldn't say one negative thing about the former Soviet Union. But he was one of the most decent human beings I ever met. And that got me to thinking, well, what about the other nine? And the the only reason why they're called the Hollywood Ten is because there were 19 so-called unfriendly witnesses. They would not cooperate with the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Uh, Then there were the friendly witnesses, like Walt Disney, uh, like um, Ayn Ayn Rand, like uh, Robert Taylor, uh, like the director Sam Wood, who were very eager to go on about the fact that they had great fears that Hollywood was going to go so far to the left that the movies would be filled with left-wing propaganda and totally alienate audiences, which, of course, would never have happened. But who knew it at the time? So these ten um, decided that they would stand by what they thought was their First Amendment rights, as Ring Lardner put it so succinctly, Hollywood can't, uh, a Congress can't in- legislate what it can't investigate. So if Congress can't legislate your political beliefs, it can't investigate them either. So they thought they were protected by the First Amendment. Little do they know they were in the beginnings of what we now call the Red Scare. That didn't make any difference. You were asked, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? You don't answer, you're in contempt. 
Now, you could take the Fifth Amendment, which they wouldn't take, because if you take the Fifth, it's an indication that you're hiding something. So they, they actually did believe in their naivete that they were protected by the First Amendment, which they were not. And 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 it really appears, and and we've seen this in other scenarios, where self-incrimination isn't as protected as we like to think it is. No, and and, and of course, in the early fifties, with the Kefauver uh, Committee, the only people who took the fifth were mobsters. <laughs> kind of gave the fifth a bad name. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, you, you don't have to incriminate yourself, but at the same time, you're going to become unemployable. Well, in the wake of, uh, of, of the time that the Hollywood Ten spent in prison, they've often e- either been dismissed as industry hacks or eulogized as Cold War moder- uh, martyrs. Um, is there a right one? No, it's somewhere in between. I mean, uh, as I said, um, most of them did not produce what we would call a directly great work. Um, uh, uh, Alva Bessie, let, let me go uh, individually. Alva Bessie, now, was a very educated man. He had a BA uh, in uh, from Columbia. Uh, he was fluent in French. He translated uh, uh, French works. Um, what did he produce? Well, not very much. He produced some novels, one very interesting novel, loosely based on the life of Marilyn Monroe called The Symbol. But as far as his film work was concerned, um, well, he he wrote, uh, well, movies that nobody would even remember. Um, Smart Woman, which was a 1948 vehicle for Constance Bennett. He wrote the original story for the Errol Flynn uh, movie, Objective Burma. But outside of that, really nothing of value. Then on the other hand, you have Dalton Trumbo, who uh, got an Academy Award nomination for his adaptation of Kitty Foyle, which actually won an Oscar for Ginger Rogers in a uh, non-musical role. Um, He did... Um, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Our Vines Have Tender Grapes. Um, But, of course, the movie that really got him and the director into trouble was Tender Comrade, which came out in 1943. Now, Leela Rogers, who was Ginger's mother, said that Ginger agonized over having to say one line in Tender Comrade, which was directed by Edward Dimitrik, who was one of the Hollywood Ten, the only director, by the way, and written by Dalton Trombo. The line that Ginger had to say was, share and share alike. And the context is, Ginger's husband, played by Robert Bryan, is away at work, and there are some other women whose husbands are uh, in the service. Uh, And um, they pool their resources to rent a house. And Ginger says, well, to be fair, it's going to be share and share alike. That was considered as communist propaganda. (laughs) 
Uh, speaking of propaganda, Bernard, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can oh, talk some? Of course, some yes, of course. My guest is uh, Bernard Dick. He is the uh, author author of uh, Radical Innocence, a critical study of the Hollywood Ten. We'll let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. 
Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the uh, the Hollywood Ten uh, from a new book called Radical Innocence by Bernard Dick, who joins me by phone. And uh, Bernard, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh no, my pleasure. Um. During the last segment, you touched on the fact, and, and it's uh, certainly evident, um, that the Hollywood Ten, you don't look at them as a group in this book, in this uh, study. And you started talking about them individually, but as you were researching each of these people, um, were there things that you felt were remarkable that maybe got lost to history because of the shadow of the um, the the hunt for communists? Yes, I mean, you know, as I said, they had uh, a creative side which became obscured because of their politics. For example, nobody knows very much or cares very much about Herbert J. Bieberman, who was one of the Hollywood Ten. But Bieberman had a MFA from the Yale School of Drama. He directed Greengrove the Lilacs for the Theater Guild. Now, Greengrove the Lilacs was the play that became the basis of the great musical Oklahoma. Now, you know, you, you might say, well, so what? To me, that is very important. He also directed Salt of the Earth, um, which was a marvelous film uh, about a silver mine strike in, in, in New Mexico in which the women actually replaced the men on the picket line. Yes, it was left-wing. Um, yes, it was radical in its approach, but it is still a great piece of filmmaking. But, you know, there are people who would say, well, who cares? Does that compare with The Grapes of Wrath? Does that compare with um, Letter to Three Wives, with All About Eve? Um, you know, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it still is, in its own right, a great film. Now, Ring Lardner Jr., who is the son, of course, of Ring Lardner, this sports writer, won two Academy Awards. And perhaps to some people, this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but certainly, I am impressed that Lardner Jr., who was a Princeton dropout, in 1942, won, shared an Academy Award um, Oscar, with for best screenplay for the first pairing of Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn called Woman of the Year. Then when he came off the blacklist, he got another Academy Award, sole screenplay credit, for his adaptation of MASH, which was directed by the great Robert Altman. So, you know, I, I don't think that these are minor accomplishments. Well, let me let me ask you this, uh, Bernard. The, um, 
The questions primarily that were being asked of these 10 and others was about their membership in the Screenwriters Guild and as you mentioned uh, in the previous segment whether or not they had uh, ever been a member of the Communist Party. Why the Screenwriters Guild? Was there some well, because sense? It was, it was one of the first unions in Hollywood. I mean, the last thing in the world the studio heads wanted were unionized writers. I mean, you know, the screenplay was considered as pre-production. I mean, you know, nobody wanted writers on the set because they would say, oh, you changed my line, you know, I didn't want to read this <laughs> way and that sort of thing. I mean, writers are... Um, in many ways, very protective of their own work, and who would blame them, you know? I mean, I don't sure. like copy editors messing around with my work, but, you know, you have to eat humble pie and say, yeah, all right, they they said it better. I, this was a little too flowery, it was a little too purple. But, you know, that's that's the, that's the, uh, the way it is. But if you belong to the Screenwriters Guild, you belong to a union, and union equals left, equals socialist, equals communist. That was the mentality. I, I was going to say, I, I was just wondering if the people that were looking for communists believed uh, at the time, and, and maybe even still, that unions have uh, communist underpinnings. Oh, well, yes, that was, that was a common uh, th- uh, belief at the time. Also, the writers could insert propaganda into the scripts that would go um, undetected except by people who were easily influenced, like share and share alike. Well, maybe that's the American way. Well, it isn't the American way. It's the communist way, each according to his ability, each according to his needs. All right. Um, and, um, oh, other other, divide, other uh, bits of um, um, propaganda, too. There's a scene in um, Action in the North Atlantic, which was... <coughs> written by John Howard Lawson, who was also one of the Hollywood Ten. Dane Clark looks up at the sky, and he says, planes, he said, they're ours. Well, actually, they are Russian planes. But, you know, Russia was our ally during World War II, so if they're theirs, they're also ours, because one ally equals another ally. I mean, there was, there was this very subtle kind of propaganda that you would get into uh, films of this sort. But it, for most people, it would simply go over their heads. Now, they wouldn't even pay any attention to it, because they were more focused on the plot of the movie. Was Hollywood the first to be attacked by anti-communists in what eventually looked into government employees. And, and we remember the famous Army McCarthy hearings and Joe well, McCarthy. Well, that was the Senate. Yeah, that was the Senate. Uh, the um, HUAC was the House. Uh, and, uh, yes, it was the And they, they only went after um, Hollywood uh, filmmakers because Hollywood simply had, still had a cachet. There was sort of an aura about Hollywood. You know, if they went after academics, who would care? You know, we're not very exciting <laughs> people, let's face it. <laughs> and the head of the committee, J. Parnell Thomas, actually ended up in the same federal prison with Lester Cole because he was accused of embezzlement. So here you have the accuser and the accused being in the same facility. Was that while the committee was still going on? 
was someone you know, in? even even after Parnell Thomas was convicted of embezzlement, they got another chair. Uh, John Wood, I think, was his name. But I mean, you know, they, it, it went on and on into the fifties. And I first became, uh, and I was in high school at the time, aware of HUAC when I picked up the paper in 1951 and read that Larry Parks had been a member of the Communist Party. Now, um, some of your um, audience may remember Larry Parks. He played Al Jolson in the marvelous musical, The Jolson Story. And he lip-synced so perfectly that you actually believed that Jolson's voice was coming out of Larry Parks. Well, he became, yes, he became a member of the Communist Party briefly. Edward Demetric was also one of the Hollywood Ten, was a member of the party briefly for one year. He wasn't even a communist in 1947 when the hearings began. But out of solidarity, he stayed with the other nine, whereas he could very easily have said, no, I'm no longer a member of the Communist Party. But then if he did, he would be asked, well, was so-and-so a member? Was so-and-so a member? And, uh, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, you mentioned the blacklist, and a lot of people have heard about Hollywood people being blacklisted. How did the blacklist come about? What was it? And, and how many people ended up on it? Oh, Lord, hundreds. Uh, the blacklist originated on November 25th, 1947, where the studio heads met at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and uh, drafted what is now known as the Waldorf Statement, stating, in effect, that they would not hire anybody who was a communist who had not purged himself before HUAC, which means to say, uh, which, uh, which is to say that if you have communist writers or any uh, member of the film community who is a communist uh, on your payroll, they will go off it immediately unless they go before the committee and confess their sins, as if they were going into a confessional, you know. So that's what it was. No, the studio, the Hollywood blacklisted its own. I mean, one thing, if the government said, all right, you can't employ these people, here's a list of people who are unemployable. But they didn't do that. Of course, they couldn't do that. But it was uh, dumped onto the studios to blacklist their own. And they did. I mean, you talk about loyalty. Of course, we all know it doesn't exist in Hollywood. I mean, uh, Lester <laughs> told me once that, you know, if, if you were in a restaurant and, um, and you had been accused of being a communist, the Red Channels, Red, Red Channels would accuse all kinds of people of being communists. Lucille Ball was considered uh, a, a, a communist. And she had to go and say, you know, in her I Love Lucy costume, that my grandfather was a member of the Communist Party, but I'm not. I mean, that's how bad it got. That if you were in a restaurant and somebody came in who was a close friend of yours and saw you sitting there, they would make a very um, discreet um, um, circuit of the table so that they could avoid going past you. I mean, that's how bad it was. That's brought out in, in the movie Guilty by Suspicion with Robert De Niro. I mean, it's, it's um, really uh, frightening to see how people won't protect their own. And you but said, was that true? That was true in, in higher education as well. 
And you said there there were hundreds of people on the uh, on the blacklist, and you talk- and then there was a gray list. Marsha Hunt, for example, really? was never a member of the Communist Party, became unemployable because of guilt by association. And and who did she associate with that? Well, I mean, you know, she, she was in Nunchal Escape. It was written by Lester Cole. So oh, okay. you know, you're, you're in a you're in a movie that was written by a communist, much less a Stalinist. I mean, you know, some of it may have rubbed off on you. Well, let's face it. it, it during that period, there were a lot of people who were a little pink. Was there an official ending to the blacklist? Well, supposedly, uh, in 1960, when uh, Trumbo was hired to do both Spartacus and um, Exodus, yes. But for some people, it, it never. for Lester, it never ended. Lester's probably best-known film was written under a pseudonym, and that was Born Free, about Elsa the Lioness. But he wrote the script, not under the name of Lester Cole. Right. But there was never any formal suspension of the list. It's just people quit honoring it. Is that well? Uh, yes. And what once? Um, well, once uh, Trumbo was hired, then um, Ring Larner Jr. got off of it. Edward Demetric, for example, was never affected because after he came out of prison, he realized that as a director, um, he can't hide behind a front. He has to be on the set. So he actually went before the committee, purged himself, named names, and went back to work and directed such films as The K-Mutiny, with uh, Humphrey Bogart and um, Braintree County, with uh, Lisbeth Taylor, uh, Monty Clift, and uh, even Reese Saint. You know, he did good. He, he he did all right for himself. Then, after he stopped making uh, directing films, he uh, became a textbook writer. Wrote some excellent textbooks on editing, on screenwriting, on directing. This is um, fascinating and. I just can't help thinking that this must have been uh, tremendously interesting for you with your interest in film and film history to have uh, explored. Where did you where did you find information? What were some of your your sources in well, putting the together? Well, gave gave their papers uh, to the um, uh, uh, Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, so I went up to Madison, Wisconsin, and spent a week up there. Uh, and uh, it, w- it was fascinating because a lot of it was unpublished stuff. A lot of it was um, uh, sc- uh, screenplays that never really reached the screen and so on and so forth, letters, correspondence. Uh, they they really were, to me, an incredibly interesting group of people. Um, and I admired their politics, uh, or even though I'm, I am not now, nor have ever been a member of the <laughs> Communist Party. But I, One I of us had that, to say that at some point, Bernard. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. But uh, it, it, they, they stood for something. Today, we would call them progressives. You know, they just wanted the world to be a better place for a lot of more people than it really was. And I admire that. And and is today, and and there are people who would uh, would easily start what many have called in the in in the years since that 
decade, um, a witch hunt. Yes, yes. Oh, I know it. I know it. Yes, I, I know. Um, well, um, people are people, I guess. What kind of response have you gotten to the book so far? Um, have have members of uh, the Hollywood Ten or their families uh, responded at all? Uh, well, actually, I, I think uh, you you may have been uh, misinformed. This is a revised paperback edition of the book that came out, oh, I think around 1980, uh, 1990. Um, oh, I th see, I, I thought when the paperback came out, it was uh, part of a new book, a new release. And now they're releasing all of all of my books in paper. Um, uh, several of them are going to be are, have been um, radically revised. So um, no, this this actually came out in 1990, and uh, this is the first paperback edition. Okay, all right. Well, I stand corrected, Bernard, and thank you for that information. Um, but but I I'm still curious about the the reaction that you got to telling these stories by either members of the Hollywood Ten, if they were still alive, or their families, uh, descendants, etc. Well, uh, Ring Larner Jr. was uh, still alive. He was happy with it. Uh, Lester was happy. Um, let me see. Um, I never uh, met Alba Bessie, uh, but I think his son was satisfied with the book. Samuel Ornitz, who actually wrote some wonderful novels, uh, Haunch, Paunch, and Jowl, which is considered a major work of Jewish-American fiction, had died of cancer in 1957. As a matter of fact, when he was in prison, they had to put him in a uh, special medical uh, section because of his cancer. And he got out in 1950 and died seven years later. But I did talk to his... Um, widow, uh, Sadie Ornitz, uh, who is a wonderful woman. She was in her 90s when we spoke, but I really was uh, uh, very uh, dubious about talking to her because I do make the point that if he stayed writing fiction, uh, he would be far better known today than he actually is because really his film work wasn't much. And she agreed. She said she always felt that he was a much better novelist than he was a screenwriter. So, yes, it was very gratifying to uh, talk to uh, her. Um, as far as the Trumbo family, uh, I don't really know what they uh, thought. Uh, I do know that Christopher, who just died a few years ago of cancer, did manage to locate a script that is father wrote for Roman Holiday, the um, Audrey Hepburn film with Gregory Peck, yeah. um, because, um, well, it's rather complicated. Uh, he wrote the original story, screen story, but of course he was blacklisted, and Ian McKellen Hunter fronted for him, worked on the screenplay uh, with another writer, and now the screenplay that Trumbo wrote was discovered. And um, he now gets co-screenplay credit for Roman Holiday. Oh, wow. Um, why is it important to remember these stories? Well, it's important to remember the stories is because, you know, any of us could be called up um, to account for our past 
so-called sins, um, when, you know, depending upon what the climate of the country is at the time. I, I don't believe that, I, I know we all have rights, but I'm beginning to wonder exactly how sacred, how safe these, these rights really are. It all depends upon the climate of the, of the age. And that's why it's important to look at periods of time in our history like this, because we assume when we see events like the attack on the Capitol in January that, you know, this is something new and it's never happened before. And it's, you know, it's because of people like you, Bernard, uh, um, telling these stories, albeit almost 75 years old, um, the the stories really still are relevant in a lot of ways. My guest is uh, Bernard Dick. The book we're talking about is Radical Innocence, a critical study of the Hollywood Ten about the uh, anti-communist uh, hearings in Washington back in the late 40s and through the 50s. Um, Bernard, what are you working on now? Well, I, I uh, just finished um, a book on um, Daryl Zanuck's musicals called The Gentleman Preferred Blondes, and he did, Betty Grable, you know, <laughs> June Haver, Marilyn Monroe, of course, whom he hated. Um, in fact, he, he was quoted as saying, I wouldn't have slept with her if she paid me. But, um, <laughs> you know, she did do Gentleman Preferred Blondes for him, and that was a huge moneymaker. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I, I'm just celebrating the 71st anniversary of my first Broadway show. A very good friend of my mother, on August 16th, 1950, took me to see Kiss Me, Kate, uh, uh in New York. And um, I, I've loved Cole Porter ever since. And, you know, I may die doing it, but I really want to do a book on Cole Porter's musicals, both his Broadway musicals and the musicals that have been made into movies, like, of course, Kiss Me, Kate, which was made into a wonderful movie with Catherine Grayson and Howard Keel. Uh, and also, um, he is uh, the two uh, biographies, film biographies, neither of which is really very good, Night and Day with Cary Grant and The Lovely with uh, Kevin Kline. And he also wrote one musical for television. All of this, when he was, um, well, at one point, at the end of his life, he was a double uh, amputee because of the awful horse riding accident that he had, which affected his legs. And eventually, both legs had to be amputated. But, I mean, he still wrote some wonderfully witty, uh, clever, sophisticated, and in many ways moving lyrics, like, for example, the lyric to Night and Day. Um, and I, I would like to do that, and that's what I've more or less started now. Well, you are a wealth of information and a lot of fun to talk to, and I really appreciate you uh, spending this time with me this morning. Oh, well, I was delighted. Thank you so much. All right. Well, keep up the good work, Bernard. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That was uh, Bernard Dick. He is the uh, Professor Emeritus of Communications in English at Fairleigh Dickinson uh, University. He uh, is the author of numerous film books, including Anatomy of Film, 
uh, Hal Wallace, producer to the stars, and that was Entertainment, the Golden Age of the MGM. And uh, his uh, latest book, which uh, I imagine is out or will be, well, it'll be out in early 2022, is uh, The Golden Age Musicals of Daryl Zanuck. And the book we were talking about today, his book, Radical Innocence, a critical study of the Hollywood Ten, looking at the uh, un-American activities, hearings, and consequences uh, of the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program uh, after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, Scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in edible arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for edible arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter 
Scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, we are indeed honored to have with us tonight one of Hollywood's foremost columnists, Mr. Hollywood himself, Jose Jimenez. Thank you. Thank you and greetings to you from Hollywood. Here are some of my exclusives. Hollywood restaurateur, Prince Seymour Napkin, has just opened up a posh new eatery right next to his restaurant. <laughs> Jack Tinsel and Harry Facade have joined forces and have formed a new production company called Jack and Harry Productions. <laughs> and it's right next to their restaurant. <laughs> There's always hope department. Young actor Skippy Wilson, who started out 12 years ago as an usher at the Pantages Theater, just got his old job back. How about that, sir? <laughs> yeah. But only part-time. <laughs> Greer Dempsey's divorce suit is finally settled, and she tells me she's delighted to learn that she gets custody of the money. <laughs> but he gets visiting privileges. <laughs> Hollywood's newest twosome are Frank Newsom and Helen Twosome. <laughs> Rod LaRue has been asked to come out of retirement and go back to work in pictures by his wife, <laughs> who says they're broke and he wants to go out and... Chester Moses has been signed to appear in a starring role in the new biblical film, The Charlton Heston Story. <laughs> a note to an MGM. Thanks, MGM, for your generous contribution to the home for aged actors. You gave us what we needed most. 1,876 aged actors. <laughs> Since the sudden elopement of aging director Boris Klein and the young starlet Lydia Stilwell, People up and down Sunset Boulevard are asking the same question. Who cares? (laughs) 
Now, I know some of you people out there would be just thrilled to learn the inside of what's happening around Jollywood. So, if you have any questions, yes. How can I get into the newspaper business? Do you own a bicycle, sir? <laughs> yes. I've heard that a lot of Hollywood stars are afraid of you. <laughs> you tell whoever told you that that I will break them. Is it true that Hollywood columnists are freeloaders? <laughs> Why don't you have me out for lunch later? <laughs> and we'll... Yes, young lady. Jose, what do you think the next big Hollywood divorce will be? Have you been home recently, dear? <laughs> Came here right from work, didn't you? <laughs> well, surprise. Yes, any other questions? Is it, is it true that most Hollywood stars pay as much as $25 for a haircut? I'll tell you that later, Mr. Brenner. <laughs> Jose, as a, as a Latin, what do you think of canting floss? I do it. <laughs> secret way of getting them. I read Luella Parsons. <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Round, play our 
program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Al Hatch with Back to the Bricks and you're listening to the Tom Summer Show. Stream us live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon at TomSumnerProgram.com, made possible by listeners like you. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Spreading like a plague And POTUS and his lackeys Have been nothing if not vague Well then you've got to trust the CDC And listen well Unless you want to bid our free society farewell There is a Super bad transmittable contagious awful virus And if we don't act quick and social distance It will mire us In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad transmittable contagious awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better <coughs> Now back in 1918 influenza had its run But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who 
much of anywhere unless it's sterilised. Oh, Superman, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the lesson to deny us. Superman, transmittable, Superman, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.